I'm Andrew Entwistle from New Street, and this is Michael Breitenstein from BCG, and we're going to be moderating the second panel, which focuses on innovations in the last mile. And given that most of the cost in the telecoms industry is in the last mile, it's a very good place to look for innovation, and it's certainly an area that needs innovation. So firstly, we're going to be hearing from um, Alteros, who uh, are dealing with the knotty and long-standing problem of rural connectivity, rural telecoms, um, with the approach of tethered aerostats or aerostats. Um, so uh, Joe Ryan from uh, from Alteros will be um, telling us how they're approaching the problem and the progress they've been making. Then secondly, uh, we'll be hearing from Airspan, um, the up-and-coming uh, network vendor, network equipment vendor, who is part of uh, some of the most potentially disruptive network builds on the planet. Uh, what I particularly like about um, Airspan is the way they embrace some of the innovations in the last mile that make the traditional vendors turn pale. Uh, so Damiano Coletti will be explaining why the traditional vendors are right to be uh, worried. And then uh, finally, we're going to hear from uh, Pivotal Comware, um, who um, are focused on innovation in the, uh, the nitty-gritty RF issues um, that we at New Street have been spending a lot more time on than I think we ever expected in recent times. So that's beamforming, massive MIMO, millimeter wave, uh, getting all of that to function at useful cost points. Uh, so Brian Deutsch uh, from uh, Pivotal Comware is going to be helping us to get out of the weeds on that one. Um, so with no further ado, I'll hand over to Joe, who will tell us about uh, Alterosa. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for uh, joining us today. I'm Joseph Ryan. I am from Alteros, which is a company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, focused on bringing wireless services to locations where they're currently not available, generally very, very rural areas. And we've been doing this by using an aerostat, which you see there. Um, we were founded about five, six years ago out of MIT. Um, we're a team of about 30 engineers and me, um, and we are backed by SoftBank. Um, our goal to bring rural connectivity to uh, these rural areas is using this aerostat to replace towers, replace infrastructure, or at least displace it where it doesn't exist currently, and allow carriers to be able to afford to bring infrastructure to these areas. Um, by putting the antennas high in the air, that site is about 250 meters in the air permanently, um, we're able to cover an area of up to 10,000 kilometers squared, um, which is essentially the equivalent of 10 to 15 cell sites. Let's see. Here we are. Um, as I said, we can replace 15 cell sites. The system is really a military aerostat at the end of the day, the same type of aerostat they're currently using in Afghanistan, Iraq, as well as on the border to um, observe and uh, sense problems and, and issues in these locations. What we've done is taken that military-style aerostat that has a crew of 10 to 12 and fully automated it. So this aerostat has no crew, can stay up permanently. Um, there's no one sitting at a joystick in Vegas driving it or anything. It is, it is fully automated, autonomous, self-learning. Um, it's essentially a very large robot uh, with a leash that flies. Um, but because it covers such a large area, it's, um, 
you can cite it in locations where it may be difficult to cite 15 towers or even one tower for that matter. Uh, because the area covered is so large, the search ring is a lot is a lot larger. So you can go from one jurisdiction to the next to get a better jurisdiction for zoning, which is obviously the long pole in the tent when it comes to any uh, infrastructure siting. Um, you can site it closer to fiber, site it closer to power. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier to site and operate once it's up. The additional advantage of replacing 15 sites is you've got 15 fewer backhaul connections, 15 fewer power runs, 15 fewer sets of antennas, 15 fewer sets of base stations. Numerous uh, tower climbers and the safety involved with that are now not necessary. You, You don't need a crane to fix this, to replace a radio on it. It uses standard um, equipment that OEMs currently make. Uh, the antennas are, are nothing special. They're matching Lunenburg lens antennas. I mean, they're somewhat unique. And the radios on it currently are just Ericsson RRUs, so you could it's set up to be able to plug and play any type of equipment. So regular cell tech can go out to it and make those changes. All right. I'll start with a video of it. If we could play this video. It's a good way to show what we have here. As I said, this cracks me up that we're at a wireless conference and the wireless mics don't work. So this is it is a fixed system. Um, it is this particular system is located in New Hampshire. We've been testing up there with a number of wireless carriers. We've tested on a live network up there. I'll get into a little bit of that later. It has stayed up for weeks on end, flown through the snow, ice, all the nasty weather you get uh, on the coast of New Hampshire. Pretty much a lot of the worst weather we could expect anywhere we experienced last winter. The thing that makes this aerostat particularly unique compared to others is there's three tethers which allow us to, they have allowed us to automate it. It allows us to control pitch, altitude, attitude, uh, the direction that it's in. So it's constantly adjusting itself. It has three winches on the ground that are self-learning, automated, autonomous. So they're constantly making small adjustments. It's almost like looking at someone sailing a sailboat as they trim the sails here and there. It's doing the same thing, turning winches after winch over and over again to keep itself pointed into the um, keep itself pointed into the wind. That's really our secret sauce of the algorithms involved with that. With regard to weather, it senses the weather on the aerostat, on the ground, but it also takes in weather from sources like NOAA or Sirius weather. Um, So it can sense if something like a hurricane is coming. It can stay up right up to a Category 1 hurricane, so it can withstand winds of up to 100 kilometers an hour. But if there is a Category 1 or above hurricane arriving, it will automatically bring itself down right out the hurricane, protecting all the equipment on it. When the hurricane passes, it knows it's passed and it goes up. And it can do that without any human intervention. This is basically the system. You've got the aerostat system at the top. Um, the antennas and radios are here. Um, pretty much like you find at a cell site, except for the antennas are somewhat unique. Lunenburg lens antennas, which have, are useful in the site because they have a high, uh, high gain and a very wide beam width that helps account for the, uh, the movement. Um, the ground station rotates 360 degrees, which keeps it pointed into the wind, reduces the movement of the antennas. Um, 
as I said, we've tested this with a number of wireless carriers. We ran the system on a live network this past summer up in New Hampshire, one of the carrier networks. Um, it performed, performed flawlessly as if it was a member of the network. It um, hit all of the standard KPIs. Uh, it was able to get a signal out to 55 kilometers from the site, validating that uh, 10,000 kilometers squared. It particular thing we were concerned about was the motion affecting the handoffs, and that had absolutely no impact on handoffs. It hit all the handoff KPIs as we uh, hoped it would. So right now we are continuing to test this with carriers and in negotiations with a few carriers about deploying these in uh, different environments. I mean, some of it is ultra-rural um, South America, Africa type stuff. Some of it is um, rural United States in little pockets where there's not coverage. Uh, the government's always calling us looking for us to produce something for them. We haven't done that yet. But it is something that the carriers have been interested in in dealing with the last mile on a very global scale as opposed to the micro scale um, that these guys will be discussing. Um, there's a lot of interest in using it as the coverage layer over a network of small cells where, you know, you'd be running 600, 700, 800 megahertz on this way out up and then covering the small towns below with uh, small cell systems. Um, so most of, one of the more unique things about this is the tethers. So it has three tethers. Two of them are strength members. One of them is uh, this composite tether I have here, which contains two fibers, uh, power conductors, and um, Vectran, which is super strong uh, stuff they make the lines on America's Cup boats out of. Uh, it's made by a company that makes undersea ROV tethers. So the same sort of uh, technology just going up instead of down. But as you can see, it's pretty you know flexible, unique stuff. And th this is what really makes us distinguishable from other airborne-based systems like Loon and, uh, and the one Facebook had been working on. Those folks are connected to the ground wirelessly via free space optics. Uh, they don't have power. They're solar. What we have here is full-blown power, full-blown fiber, allowing you to put a regular cell site up here. And uh, I will yield the floor to the gentleman from Airspan. So for those of you who don't know us, we've been developing hardware and software systems uh, for radio for the last 25 years. We're a U.S. company. We're actually spun out of um, a U.S. company called DSC Communications. And um, over the last few years, we've really scaled up our deployments with, as Andrew mentioned, some of the most innovative and disruptive uh, operators in the world. And we've been able to do this because of uh, a few things. First of all, we've got great, um, great partnerships with both contract manufacturers and silicon providers uh, whose you know, silicon we can take and then also add our IP on top of. And most importantly, what we've been able to do is we've been able to really crack the, the, the nut when it comes to zoning. Because irrespective of your generation of wireless technology, zoning is a, is a big problem. And thanks to things like integrated wireless backhaul, sophisticated sonic algorithms, which allow for self-optimizing networks, and plug-and-play functionality, we've been able to change the way networks are deployed, um, you know, moving from a, uh, a, cell, uh, a cell tower base station, who, which takes you know, cranes, and you'll see that in a second, I'm, I'll make that point, to 
simply shipping via, via FedEx, so it's as easy as a cell phone. And we've been recognized in the industry for, for these, these deployments, most notably the Glomo, which is the Oscar of uh, you know, the, the kind of wireless space, um, and as well as multiple other awards in different verticals, fixed wireless access, uh, vertical applications for 5G. Um, once again, going to the, you know, we're, we're able to scale and bring these networks to, to, to our customers at a speed that was uh, previously unfathomable. And I'll take you, through a, a few, take you through a few of those use cases. So we've shipped uh, approximately a million cells, which are live on air uh, right now with the operators you see below. Um, Rakuten most recently, uh, Geo and Sprint, our large customer base, uh, SoftBank, Turkcell. And as you can see, there's lots of different form factors. And so, you know, this is something that's true in 4G, and it's also, you'll see true in 5G, that there's not, you know, a one-size-fits-all. So if you look at Sprint, we've got over 300,000 cells deployed across the United States in various form factors. Uh, Mini Macro, Magic Box, which is a, a fully wireless self-backhaul base station, which uh, not only provides coverage and capacity indoors, but also to the adjacent buildings, which is a, a significant uh, advantage. And then our strand-mounted product, we are the world leaders in this space um, with, uh, on strand mount. And we, this is a product we developed for Sprint, and we, we see a lot of potential for it in, um, for MSOs. A little bit more on that. In, uh, and this is the most, most interesting statistic, in my opinion. In eight months, we were able to deploy 20,000 cells. To put that number into context, Sprint had previously only deployed, uh, I think, Five to 8,000 cells in the previous three years put together uh, on the outdoor small cell space. And really cracking that nut in terms of, uh, uh, you know, zoning and getting access to, to rights of way is something that we, we really excel at. Um, and we see a huge potential for this market and uh, for things like CVRS, but not just in the United States, also in places like Southeast Asia, Asia in general, where there's lots of strand infrastructure that one can leverage, um, especially in hyperdense um, metropolis like Jakarta or you know Tokyo. Um, in with uh, Reliance, we also have a fantastic network where we've done uh, over 150,000 cells. Um, you know, pure greenfield operator, zero to 100 million subscribers in six months, and we were there from the very beginning, and we're still with them today. We're developing new products for them on 4G, um, most recently the one to your right, furthest to your right, where we're getting things like 20 watts of power in a base station, which is roughly the size of two laptops put together um, with the antenna and everything. And, and it's important to, to highlight the fact that you know, this, it, we're not just developing the hardware for them, we're also developing the software. And you know, the software has, as I, as I said, you know, been deployed to millions of, of cells, and it, it's carrier grade. We've been through the We've been through the gate, we've gotten bloody, and we've, we're, we're at the point where we, we provide operators a real peace of mind in terms of, you know, the solutions that we're able to offer them. And so in 5G, there's no, no silver bullets as well. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, kinds of uh, applications and there's all kinds of use cases. So, you know, as you're all pretty much well aware, this, the, the 5G is not just about getting more data at faster speeds to URI. It's about, you know, enabling using 5G as a, a tool for digital transformation for, for various industries. And in order to do that, you know, you need, you need different frequencies, you need different use cases, and you need different, different solutions that, that, that match that. And we're already coming to market with 
uh, a lot of these, and they'll be deployed in mass deployment uh, first half of next year. And you know, whether it be our cl- our open architecture cloud and uh, cloud native uh, software stack that goes into uh, operator A, or it's our millimeter wave small cell using you know Qualcomm SSM 100 chipset to 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 deliver um, enhanced mobile broadband in in, in urban Tokyo. It, you really need a, a whole host of, of products and, and, a, and a portfolio that can can meet all those needs. And we haven't lost any time. We are very very um, engaged with Rakuten. This is uh, you'll see our product on the. The third product from the left uh, and on the right there, that's our millimeter wave, sw- millimeter wave small cell. We'll be deploying, as I said, mass deployment in the first half of next year. But we're also providing our disruptive small cell 4G uh, in band three because the way the spectrum markets work in, in Japan is it's heavily mandated by coverage obligation. So, you know, they need to find the right solution uh, that beats that zoning, that zoning, that zoning problem and we're, we're very much engaged with them. Also, uh, something we announced uh, recently and we're very proud of is our uh, co- collaboration with GoGo. So that's a nationwide network to provide air-to-ground 5G services to you know, commercial and business aviation. Uh, and nationwide, I'm obviously I'm speaking US and, and Canada. Um, and that's you know, using our same low-power low amplifier technology where we're doing two, 2.5 watts per PA. And we're, we're able to scale that to 8 by 8, 16 by 16, all the way to um, 128 by 128. So we're delivering max, macro base stations uh, with an end-to-end uh, virtualized architecture uh, for enhanced mobile broadband in the sky. And what, what we're bringing to the table also in terms of, of software, not just in terms of uh, you know, the arrays and the, the, the size and the power, is we're bringing um, some really le- bleeding-edge Layer one functionality that adjusts for Doppler, uh, Doppler shifts. So we're we're handing over at you know 700 miles an hour, which is uh, very 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 challenging. And there's there's other things like digital beam forming uh, and you know high level software applications that we're able to really capitalize on in terms of you know the cream the, uh, of of the application that that we can offer. And so that's that's all I have for you today. But the the point is that you know we're very excited for what 5G has in store with for us, and uh, especially you know these, these vertical applications where we see uh, a lot of a lot of things happening. If you look particularly at you know countries that are making spectrum available uh, for those for those applications. So good morning. I'm Brian Deutsch. I'm CEO of uh, Pivotal.com, where I want to thank New Street and BCG for uh, including us in this discussion of last mile. And as Andrew said, since we're in the nitty gritty details of uh, millimeter wave, it's actually maybe the last 100 feet uh, or the last 1,000 feet. Uh, If I can impart one thing on this audience today, it would be that what you've seen so far and what you've heard and some of the shade that you've seen thrown at millimeter wave is chapter one of War and Peace. And uh, so there's a lot of investment, there's a lot of resources, and uh, a lot of companies like Frank was discussing from Verizon, putting uh, you know, a lot of chips on the table to make sure that War and Peace ends happy. And uh, so we're going to show you some of the things we're doing uh, with regard to that in millimeter wave to help you know, make this ecosystem a reality. So people come where... We're the creators of holographic beam forming, so we really built the company on this breakthrough in electromagnetic physics, uh, and it allows us to harness, uh, capture, control, and shape 
electromagnetic energy in a way that's uh, orders of magnitude improvement over legacy technologies in terms of cost, size, weight, and power consumption. This is really important for a millimeter wave in as much as the technology itself. I don't have to remind everybody the challenges of the propagation of millimeter waves. So as I like to say, you've got to put a lot of wood behind every arrow when you shoot these arrows, these, these uh, wireless arrows. And it gives us the capability to create uh, pretty much a software-defined antenna. Now, of course, we built systems on top of that and applications on top of those systems to help carriers maximize capacity coverage, throughput, on demand. A uh, big patent portfolio spun out of an incubator called Invention Science Fund in uh, Kirkland, Washington, and Bellevue, Washington. Great investor pool, some of them sitting here today, like Thermo and uh, Starwood, and uh, also leadership from Bill Gates, who's uh, you know our leading investor, but also uh, from the industry. So from uh, spa- uh, aerospace and uh, defense contractors, but also from mobile network operators that see the value of what it is we're doing. So what is holographic beam forming? So what we tried to do was imbue the technology of optical holography and bring it to radio frequency. They're both electromagnetic waves. Physicists at Duke and Imperial College and other places around the world started nipping at this idea and came up with a surface that could replicate the idea of a hologram for an antenna. And, you know, surface uses a a branch of electromagnetic physics we call metamaterials. This is actually a complete 39 gigahertz antenna, which will outperform any phase direct. And uh, we'll draw one-tenth the power and one-tenth the cost. And you can see what the size and weight is. Won't generate much heat at all. It'll draw less than a watt. Um, And so what we do is, uh, just like holography, we have a reference wave that comes in and hits this holographic plate and distributes itself across the plate. And then we start to modulate the actual surface itself. We're not going to talk about that magic. I need a whiteboard and the stuff, you know, all sorts of eigenvectors and things like that. But uh, needless to say, very much like programming the pixels on an LCD, we can actually program this antenna to uh, different holograms, different modulation patterns of this hologram, so that when that energy passes through, it shoots a beam here, one here, maybe a null in this direction, or maybe a more complex wavefront. And so that's why we call it holographic beam forming. Again, cost, size, weight, and power consumption. Those are our value adds. So, uh, you know, uh, Frank and, uh, and, and Rudiger and Jonathan talked about, and so we're going to talk about our products now, talked about uh, the importance of 5G in general, the importance of millimeter wave and what it brings that differentiates itself from sub-6 gigahertz, but also... Uh, you know, uh, Verizon talked at length about the importance of being able to utilize the existing mobile network so that you don't build a purposefully built fixed wireless access network. You have one network, and that one network can serve many masters, uh, many use cases, whether it's just IoT sensors and a strain gauge and a bridge or trying to offer competition to those people who are fed up with their cable vendor. And uh, so in this case, you have a situation where propagation was really an issue. We started working with one leading mobile network operator about two years ago with the understanding that um, you know they were trying to propagate signals from outdoors to indoors in rows of houses, mobile dwelling units, or enterprises. One of the big challenges they hit was these windows to penetrate through. So the windows have reflection loss. 
They have penetration loss and they have shadowing loss in as much as if you're 10 floors up and the base station's down there, what you have is a narrow wedge of coverage that shoots, you know, from the windowsill to the ceiling that's about this big. So what we wanted to create for them was a portal. We wanted to be able to go out and take our holographic beamforming technology cap the energy from the uh, from the base station, um, condition it, amplify it, push it back in, and gently flood the entire interior so that you could have this ubiquitous coverage with those eight currencies that we're talking about before, all throughout your apartment, your house, or or your enterprise. So that's what we created with Echo 5G. So it overcomes all of these losses. It overcomes obviously the reflection loss by grabbing the signal before it hits the um, uh, the glass itself and providing gain. So it looks at that donor cell and puts a very narrow beam on it, brings it in, amplifies it, pushes it, and then again shapes it so that it provides coverage uh, you know, throughout. One of the interesting facets we found when we developed this, this product can be shipping in about three weeks to a network operator here in the United States. And uh, FCC approval, UL, all those other types of things that we've, we've, we've gone through. One of the things we found that was a very interesting find was it is very difficult for millimeter wave to go from outdoor to indoor. But once it's inside, it does like to ramble around a bit. It's a marble in a coffee can in as much as it has just as hard a time leaving. So even in the back bedroom, even seemingly behind wall after wall after wall, we continue to get 800 megabits, 500 megabits, 300 megabit service all the way in the back of these places. So it's quite amazing what we've seen. And uh, obviously what was really important here for any network operator is that they be able to send this thing out and the subscriber can install it themselves. They don't want to do truck rolls. What I'm going to zip you through right now is this is a map of a moderately sized city in, and this is why this matters, a moderately sized city in, in, in uh, California. And we're looking at if you take a polygon that, uh, such as the one that's lit over there and you put 300 base stations in it, you're going to get the, the, the coverage that's imbued into that color coding there. So red areas of no coverage. Uh, uh, and then you have like, you know, a whitish off white cover that there's no subscriber unit needed, no echo. In other words, there's enough signal uh, in that link budget to actually light that building up. And then there's ones where an echo is required. And then you can even take that density up to 600 sites and see what the difference is. And the reason I put this in here, you don't have to actually start counting. Uh, we've done that for you. Uh, the reality of millimeter wave densification is that shadowing is what drives the densification. And what I mean by shadowing, you're going to have this line of sights. You're going to start hitting objects. What that was that you looked at was actually something that we had, a tool we had put together um, that actually uses machine learning. So it's a cloud-based machine learning, uh, and, and it looks at every point to every point in a neighborhood. So the reality here, though, and what I want you to really take away from this is that you can see as you start to deploy, you aggressively take on outdoor area. So it's 40%, 60%, up to 80% with 300 um, uh, base stations. But in looking at that, you actually only have correspondingly about 20% indoor coverage. And that's what that was showing before is that Indoor coverage, you know, you have much less than you have when you flooded the outdoors. So that's where this echo comes in because what echo does, uh, you can see buildings with echo and, and without echo. And again, what we're looking at over here is, you know, percentage of buildings with uh, outdoor coverage and, uh, and also percentage of buildings with indoor coverage. So the outdoor coverage you have over here 80% with the echo, you get 72% coverage, whereas without echo, you get about 20% coverage. So you 4X drops your, your cost per subscriber by, uh, it, uh, to over a third. 
So this is the amazing thing that they've really latched onto with, uh, you know, with what we call Echo 5G. Super easy to install. Uh, probably should have brought one with me, but uh, I didn't have the mind to do that. Uh, and this is essentially a wrap-up of what it does. It takes this situation where the houses in green are the houses that uh, have copious coverage, the houses in orange less copious, and then the houses in red uh, are the ones with no coverage at all and turns it into this type of coverage pattern where it can go out and grab that. So not only have we solved the performance problem of getting a gigabit into the house, now we solve the unit economics problem. In other words, you have many more houses per, per G-node B. Now, what's coming next, I'll just give you a brief upcoming attraction, is we've taken this same concept and we've turned it into a network device that can take this and then round a corner. So now we take one of the beams that's, in, that, that's uh, promulgated from uh, 5G, and we turn that beam into kind of integrated access backhaul. Now we light up the street. And now instead of putting a G-Node B to light up a cul-de-sac or a blind alley or the next you know, row of houses over, you take a device that only needs power, about 20 watts of power, to mount up on a pole and send that signal down into the next generation, the next section, next section. What this allows operators to do, and this is the first time I've been doing this, I've worked for Motorola a million years ago, is the first time I've actually seen one of these Gs where the operator can spend, garner revenue, spend, garner revenue rather than just spend copiously and hope the revenue comes. So it's an organic way to grow your network. Uh, this, again, is a manifestation of Pivot 5G, and this is kind of our entire ecosystem from subscriber product to network product. You'll start seeing our antennas appear in GNODEBs also with ORAN and some of the other OEMs. Thank you. Showing us examples of, of next last mile innovations. Let, let me start the round of questions, maybe you, you Brian. Where do you see the limitations? Of, of, of beamforming, maybe with respect to the spectrum, which bands, which, which, which parts of the mm. spectrum, number one. But the other, on the other hand, where do you see beamforming as a requirement? Sure. And by having in mind, for example, small cells, right. which, which are moving very regularly mounted on, on, on flexible posts. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for us, millimeter wave was an easy first choice. Uh, not only did it manifest well, it was kind of in our wheelhouse of size and weight uh, of, of, of the things we can do, but that's where the biggest need obviously was. Um, so there, I don't know that millimeter wave without cost-effective, lightweight, you know, uh, low power-consuming beam forming could actually get pulled off. So I think that was the easy answer for us to to, um, to aim at. I'd say in mid-band spectrum, when you look at something like Sprint's Magic Box, uh, you know, there's a sense of beam forming there. They take, you know, so this is at 2.5 gigahertz, and, you know, the signal's having a hard time, you know, uh, propagating into, so Sprint has a device that, I mean, Sprint, Sprint does have a device made by these guys, a great device that actually grabs that signal, reconditions it, and floods very much like Echo does. So those devices are necessary even in the Goldilocks spectrum. Um, now, you know, for lower band coverage spectrum, beamforming is, it's, that's kind of the anti-beamforming argument, right? You want that coverage to go everywhere. And, and, and as an enabler for, for, you know, as a required technology to enable small cells. Do, do you see it? No new ways? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you look at the case of, you know, uh, Rakuten, we're looking at tens of thousands of millimeter wave small cells, which are leveraging, you know, uh, electricity poles. And, you know, it's, it's all about what, what kind of infrastructure you can get access to. But if you're in a, in a situation where you have uh, either, you know, uh, 
the, the case of downtown urban Tokyo, Tokyo with these electrical poles, and you can you have the, the luxury of being able to do that, of, of, of you know densifying your network and, and and getting that those large channels where where you need to get them. I think that millimeter wave is is, is the ideal spectrum because you can put so many of them that they don't even interfere with each other because the propagation is is so is 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 limited to you know a few. Hundred or thousand feet, as as we discussed. Yeah, the, I mean, so you know, there you look at the fact that the weakness, uh, I'll air quote, of millimeter wave is its strength, also, right? So that spatial reuse, that capability of creating spatial eigenvectors and spatial corridors, so you can aggressively reuse the same frequency, even though you have copious spectrum anyway of six, seven gigahertz, but not only on top of that, you can use it spatially and divide uh, space up, but then you can use it spatially in as much as it dies out, you know, a kilometer away. And how important is beam forming for, for small cells? So, uh, I mean, for small cells in, I, I believe that small cells for it, for a millimeter wave, there's no question. It, they have to be have beam formers. There is no other way to do it. I mean, massive multi-user MIMO is not a thing up at uh, millimeter wave. There's just no way to do it. There's no way to do that signal processing. It's impossible to do. Um, so it's one type of beam former, in other words, holographic beam former, whether it's phased arrays, which is the more incumbent legacy technology, been around 50 years or more. Um, you know, that's that's a question for me to, to I guess, to, to tussle with. But um, beam forming is an abs absolutely essential piece. And, and you know, millimeter wave for small cells, we were discussing before the, the panel started, Millimeter wave is actually probably the best uh, spectrum out there to service those vertical applications, especially for things like uh, uh, URLC, ultra-reliable mission-critical uh, communications, because you have more slots in which you can you can transmit data. So that 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 that, that uh, reliability, that mission criticalness, is is compounded and 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 delivered with that with that millimeter wave spectrum. So if you're thinking of uh, a, a supply chain or a logistics area where you've got many different small cells that need to coord, you know, offer things like coordinated multipoint for different 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 units. But that's that's a, Qualcomm has did a, a wonderful um, demo of that, I, I believe, at Mobile World Congress, where they were showing how, uh, you know, the, the the error rates were were just being annihilated by these these kinds of features. I broaden it out to, to Joe in, in the aerostat world. Yes, you have long long path, but you also have very good line of sight. We know that millimeter work works very well with satellites. You're halfway to being satellite. Um, are you exploring millimeter wave payloads for your, for we your system? Are. We are. I mean, as I indicated, at the end of the day, we're more like a tower company where we're just the enabler and people can hang whatever they want on it. But I've been in discussions with a few carriers about using millimeter wave off of the aerostat to provide uh, fixed wireless to the home. Also, as part of that coverage layer I referenced earlier, to use millimeter wave, uh, essentially fixed wireless, uh, two small cells on the ground as backhaul so they don't have to run fiber to every single one of them. You could have a dynamic network where it would hit those small cells and maybe move on to other ones um, during different times of the day. Uh, so they're certainly looking at it. That's a spectacular use for integrated access backhaul when it becomes available, right? To have, yeah. you know, something that sits up there and can feed these otherwise stranded fiberless small cells that, you know, need that energy, need that uh, information. Interesting. But, but at the moment, we seem to be in the era of sort of a brute force approach to millimeter wave. 
And I guess that's because it all arrived a bit earlier than people were expecting, and some of the technologies weren't as mature as, as they would have been in a, you know, the 2022 timeframe that maybe people were, were planning for. Does the brute force approach just have enough momentum to sort of crash through all of the elegance that we're talking about here, and we just... Um, you know, because traditional vendors have traditional solutions, we just sort of power through with those, or I can guess your answer, but... Uh, sure. And, I mean, yeah, obviously you can't. So, uh, I mean, if it, by brute force you mean, you know, let's just put a cell site on every corner, um, you know... Also, the processing power and the phase shifters on every antenna element, the things that you were saying you mm-hmm. you sidestep with mm-hmm. with your approach, but, you know, clearly we've come at, we've come at this with a sort of phased array heritage and a a sort of low-order MIMO heritage, and that's what's fed into the current generation of products. Yeah, and, and, and it is. I, so I think it is a genesis that will have, that will occur, a revolution that will occur off the genesis that, of course, yeah, the Ericsons and Nokias of the world were going to use what they had you know, readily available. And uh, so that's why we're starting out the other end of the spectrum at the subscriber and working our way back into the network uh, because, you know, we're not going to fight uh, you know the not invented here, you know syndrome that's going to exist there for for quite some time. So we're meeting in the middle though with this organic idea of being able to provide a mesh into the network and 5G set up so beautifully for this. Uh, you know one beam of 5G can house you know maybe 10 gigabits of capability and you know for you know tens or hundreds of users. So when that beam shoots out and it sees a hundred users standing on a street corner, it's probably not actually a hundred users standing on a street, and it can service them just fine. But it's not 100 users. What it is, it's one of our pivot products that actually shot it down a street to 20 houses. And inside those houses, there's three users apiece. And then that one shot to another one that went down another street and picked up another 40 users. So to it, that's the beauty of, of NR. It looks like it's just serving 100 people standing on a street corner. Uh, so we, we, we feel very confident that that's the way this is going to unfold is very organically. So they'll go find revenue where they can find revenue and they'll spend money where they need to, f- to spend money to get that revenue. Now maybe, Joe, you, you mentioned, you know, the role of, of the super towers in, in, in the 5G world. And I understood primarily you, you come from the problem of rural coverage. Now we talked about millimeter wave might actually be very a good idea than, than to deploy on those. What's the impact on, on on latency, for example, on the other promises of 5G using using your super your super tower? I mean, it would depend on the spectrum and the radios used, obviously, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't. There should be no impact. I mean, the studies we've done and the tests we've done with um, major wireless carriers from around the world, there's been no impact on latency. Um, you know, initially when I started looking at this, I was worried that the movement would uh, cause latency issues, but they're really hasn't been, we're not that far up in the air. I mean, you've got latency issues with satellites, but they're miles up there. We're only 850 feet in the air. So it's really not that different than just being on a cell site. So it, it, I'm not expecting it to become an issue. Could, could I cut in with a question for Damiano? We heard in the previous session a lot about virtualization, mm-hmm. and clearly there's been a lot of process, progress with virtualization in core networks. Mm-hmm. But you're involved in some virtualization in the access network. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a clearly an area with huge potential, um, and we have serious operators, incumbent operators, who are sort of dipping their toe in with virtualization, operators that have stayed away from sort of previous generations of Cloud RAN and NFV and whatever the acronyms were at the time. Um, your 
in, in contrast to the traditional vendors, you've embraced a, a virtualized architecture. Um, but how, how are you finding that actually plays out for real? To what extent is the connection back to the data center you know, constraining the benefits of virtualization? So, um, first of all, by, by, by design, 5G is, 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 is virtualized. And, you know, I just mentioned coordinated multipoint where you're, you know, that, that only happens when you're virtualizing, you know, the scheduler and those sort of things to, to be able to provide those sorts of features. And the example I used was uh, a vertical use case where perhaps the, you know, the, the, the connection to the data, it's a private data center and it's, it's something that's, that's easily manageable. When you're looking at, you know, consumer enhanced mobile broadband and, and that sort of thing, you're going to, it'll most likely be relegated to CBD kind of uh, deployments to start with. I doubt rural Montana will see a large uh, benefit from having a fully virtualized network unless they're able to get some really, uh, really interesting, you know, point to multipoint. Uh, low cost, maybe Wi-Fi, six gigabit per second, millimeters, you know, very, very, very aggressive kind of backhaul infrastructure in there. Um, and that, you know, they, that, that could be solved. But there, the, what's, and I guess the point there is that the, the wireless technology exists to provide that, that backhaul infrastructure in lieu of, you know, a lack of dark fiber everywhere. And I think it really depends on, you know, are you pushing for, the wide channel enhanced mobile broadband use case, or are you looking at the mission critical ultra reliable low latency use case where the bandwidth isn't really the issue, it's more about the latency. So there's 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 trade offs. You you would say that the benefits at the moment being really focused on hotspot, uh, high intensity, high capacity yeah, situations. I mean, where, where where the users are and where yeah. the first adopters of five G from an from a consumer perspective are going to be as well. They're going to be in those in those areas. Uh, I think. And would you agree with the sentiment expressed earlier that that um, an open source approach is implicit within virtualization, or, or you know, that seems to be a sticking point for some vendors? I mean, I, I, I see whether it's implicit or not. I, I see it as a, as a fantastic opportunity for people like us to be able right. to uh, now that it's institutionalized and standardized. It gives uh, vendors like us uh, a, a fighting chance in terms of being able to bring our our, our focused expertise to, to that part of the network. You know, we don't we don't we don't do core. We don't do uh, those sorts of things. So uh, when you know, sometimes we would get excluded from from bids because we didn't have the end-to-end -end system for however attractive our proposition was on RAN only. This makes you know some, the the compartmentalized you know. Uh, tendering of these of these elements is is a huge opportunity for us. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Joseph and Brian, for being here. I think we move on to the, to the next time. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.